Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for September 28th through October 11th, 2020. This is covering 3 Nephi, chapters 17 through 19. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. I always love it when they're here. Yep. Now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 19 minutes, 45 seconds. Easy peasy. What would it be daily? 2 minutes, 49 seconds. And if you don't have 2 minutes and 49 seconds in your day to dedicate to reading the Word of the Lord, you might want to reconsider your day. That sounds good. These time codes are right here if you want to jump to it chapter by chapter. Otherwise... Let's just jump right in to 3 Nephi chapter 17. Now, we are still on day one. All of the stuff that we talked about since chapter 11 is still the first day. It's all happening in the first day. And there's still more that's going to happen in the first day. So let's jump right into what's happening here in the first three verses of chapter 17. As you do that... Remember what we've talked about, what we've covered so far, what you've read so far, and now watch for how the Savior focuses on his listeners. He is the master teacher. Verse 1, Behold, now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked round about again on the multitude. So right there, what do we learn about Jesus? He's not just giving them a lecture. He's looking round about And he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. Now, when he says that, I'm wondering if he said that specifically because he's been watching them and looking for how they're responding to his teachings. He goes on in verse 2. I perceive, and that already is an amazing statement, to perceive means that you are understanding something about your audience because you are paying attention to them. I perceive that ye are weak, and ye cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. Therefore, go ye unto your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said. Again, the perfect teacher. I see you need some time to process. I'm not going to go on until I let you take some time here. Think about what we're talking about and to do it in the context of your homes. He goes on, And ask the Father in my name, that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. That, to me, is a beautiful example of someone who really cares about what their students are experiencing. What I learned from this is that Christ is patient with us, He will keep teaching us and mentoring us until we learn it. That's how important what he is telling us is. Very true. In the Institute Manual, I found a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell from his book, Wherefore Ye Must Press Forward, about the importance of pondering. He says, quote, The worshipers at Ramiumptum so ritualized their religion that they never spoke of their God again until they had assembled themselves together a week later at the Holy Stand. Note the contrast. 
in how Jesus instructed his followers on this hemisphere, see how the master focuses on the family, on pondering, praying, preparing together. It should not surprise us if we routinize our religion and do not assign the highest priority to the kingdom that our hearts and minds will quite naturally drift to other things, end quote. Wonderful. Now, if we keep this idea in mind that has been introduced that by pondering and praying to the Father, we prepare our minds to receive greater understanding, let's look at how that plays out in these next verses, starting in verse 4. But now I go unto the Father, this is Christ speaking, and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel, for they are not lost unto the Father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. Now, that's already exciting, this idea. And it seems that he has something he needs to do. But look at what the people do that changes what Christ will do or what he will give them. And it came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, he cast his eyes round about, again, really paying attention to his audience, again on the multitude and beheld that they were in tears and did look steadfastly upon him, as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. Look at what they desired, and ask yourself how important is our desire in what we're able to receive from the Savior. Not always the doing. You'll notice here they didn't ask him to tarry a little longer, but that was the desire of their hearts. And that counts. Not only does that count, that's big when it comes to our relationship with God, because it moves us toward something. If it weren't for the righteous desires of these Nephites right here, the events that we're about to read and continue in chapter 18, they might never have happened. So look for these blessings and attach them to the fact that their desire to have Jesus be with them even a little longer, that desire is what initiated this. So in the coming verses, 6 through 10, we've got Jesus healing. In 11 through 18, he prays for the people. In 19 through 25, something incredible happens. Let's take a look. Verse 6, and he said unto them, behold, my bowels are filled with compassion toward you. Have ye any that are sick among you? Bring them hither. Have ye any that are lame or blind or halt or maimed or leprous or that are withered or that are deaf or that are afflicted in any manner? First of all, I love that phrase because that includes me. That are afflicted in any manner, bring them hither and I will heal them. For I have compassion upon you and my bowels are filled with mercy. For I perceive that ye desire that I should show unto you what I have done unto your brethren at Jerusalem. For I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. Look at all these observations the Savior is making about these people. And that notion, your faith is sufficient. Where it wasn't, we read this in the New Testament, where the faith wasn't there, he could do no mighty miracles. But here it is, verse 9, And it came to pass that, 
When he had thus spoken, all the multitude with one accord did go forth with their sick and their afflicted and their lame and with their blind and with their dumb and with all them that were afflicted in any manner. Again, I'm in that group. And he did heal them, every one, as they were brought forth unto him. And they did all, both they who had been healed and they who were whole, bow down at his feet and did worship him. And as many as could come for the multitude did kiss his feet, insomuch that they did bathe his feet with their tears. So that's the first group of miracles that happened simply because of where their righteous desires were. Let's take a look at the next one. The next one will start in verse 11. And it came to pass that he commanded that their little children should be brought. Now, this is interesting. If you've ever been in any kind of meeting, be it state conference or general conference or whatever, there are segments where you you just have the adults. And it's likely that these were largely adults that were meeting with Jesus at this time. He's specifically asked for the children to come. So they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him. And Jesus stood in the midst, and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought unto him. And it came to pass that when they had all been brought and Jesus stood in the midst, he commanded the multitude that they should kneel down upon the ground. And it came to pass that when they had knelt upon the ground, Jesus groaned within himself and said, Father, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. And when he had said these words, he himself also knelt upon the earth. And behold, he prayed unto the Father, and the things which he prayed cannot be written. And the multitude did bear record who heard him. And after this manner do they bear record. The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. And no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak, and no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying unto the Father, he arose. But so great was the joy of the multitude that they were overcome. This is an incredible example to us. Not only does he have them kneel down, but then he himself kneels down and demonstrates for them the example of prayer. Well, and specifically, not only does he demonstrate the example of prayer, he wanted the children to be the closest to him. You know, you you hear this description, they brought the children round about him and the crowd backed away so that the children could fit in. So yet the first layer of people are the children. They're the ones that are up front and center. And then the rest of the people, that's pretty amazing. It is. And I think one thing that I learned from this that I need to consider in my own prayers is that Jesus isn't praying for himself and what he needs. He is praying for others. And look, no one can conceive, this is at the end of 17, 
of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us. What can we learn about what can make our prayers meaningful? Maybe we need to be praying less for ourselves. And not saying that we can't pray for ourselves, but look at the power that came as Jesus prayed for others. Look at how it changed them. Now, granted, they got to hear the prayer here, but I think there's great power in that. As we look outward to others rather than obsessing about ourselves, I think we grow closer to the Savior. Agreed. Now, we've seen in other areas of the scripture the notion of something that cannot be written. And there is a sense sometimes that this might be because the material is perhaps too sacred. But in this specific example, it seems that what they heard transcends any known language to them. In other words, they could not write what they had experienced. They didn't have the words to do so. Yeah. Specifically in verse 17, and no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man. You know, and bear in mind that whatever language they're using, they're maintaining at least a level of language of either Hebrew and Egyptian, whatever is written on the plates of brass. So they're familiar with other languages. This is a statement that, to me, explains that we wanted to write this, but we can't. We don't have the words. Well, and that's something that we don't often think about, and that is the ideas that we can express are in large part limited to the vocabulary of our language. Yeah. And, and so the vocabulary is, is limited. Yeah. You know, any language in human history has its own limitations. So this is pretty exciting. Yeah. I wonder how they were hearing it or perceiving it or feeling it as that prayer was happening. Must have been incredible. So verse 19, and it came to pass that Jesus spake unto them and bade them arise. And they arose from the earth and he said unto them, blessed are ye because of your faith. And now behold, my joy is full. And when he had said these words, he wept and the multitude bare record of it. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. And he spake unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold your little ones. And as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes toward heaven, and they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven, as it were in the midst of fire. And they came down and encircled those little ones about. And they were encircled about with fire, and the angels did minister unto them. Now, right there, this, by the way, is one of my favorite moments in the entire Book of Mormon. Hmm. But I do like to wonder, what does it mean for the angels to minister unto the children? We know what it is to minister to us. I mean, did they bring them something? Did they heal? Did they encourage? Did they hug them? I, I don't know what it is, but something. there was an interaction happening between these angels and these children, which is very exciting to imagine or wonder what that might be. Going on at 25, and the multitude did see and hear and bear record, and they know that their record is true, for they all of them did see 
and hear, every man for himself. And they were in number about two thousand and five hundred souls, and they did consist of men and women and children. This is the first piece of information we get about the size of the crowd that would have been there in Third Nephi chapter 11 when he first arrived. And that's quite a group. Indeed. From the Institute Manual, I found a really nice quote from then general president of the primary, Sister Micheline P. Grassley. This is from October 1992 General Conference. She says, quote, Let us not underestimate the capacity and potential power of today's children to perpetuate righteousness. No group of people in the church is as receptive to the truth, end quote. Beautiful. From here, we move on to chapter 18. Welcome to chapter 18. Yes, and the day continues. Remember, this is still the first day. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine the journal entries? So let's start in verse 3 when Jesus introduces the sacrament. And when the disciples had come with bread and wine, he took of the bread and brake and blessed it. And he gave unto the disciples and commanded that they should eat. And when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. And when the multitude had eaten and were filled, he said unto the disciples, Behold, there shall one be ordained among you, and to him will I give power that he shall break bread and bless it and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. And this shall ye always observe to do, even as I have done, even as I have broken bread and blessed it and given it unto you. And this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. Now, I know for some of us, these are promises that we hear in our sacrament prayer each week. But look at how he's carefully describing how this will work. If you do this, you'll remember my body, which I've shown to you. And this will be a testimony to the Father that you remember me. And if you always remember me, you shall have my spirit. So it's a wonderful explanation of the prayer. Verse 8, And it came to pass that when he said these words, he commanded his disciples that they should take of the wine of the cup and drink of it, and that they should also give unto the multitude that they might drink of it. And it came to pass that they did so, and did drink of it, and were filled. And they gave unto the multitude, and they did drink, and they were filled. And when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them, Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, for this is fulfilling my commandments, and this doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. So look at this other part then in verse 8. First, he gives them a commandment to partake of the wine of the cup. And then he says, as they fulfill the commandment to do that part of the sacrament, blessed are ye in fulfilling my commandments. This witnesses to the Father that you're willing to do what I commanded you which again is not quite the way I usually had thought of the sacrament prayer. But this explanation really gives purpose 
to the expectation of the sacrament. Continuing in verse 12, And I give unto you a commandment, that ye shall do these things, and if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon them, they shall fall. And the gates of hell are ready open to receive them. Therefore, blessed are ye, if ye shall keep my commandments, which the Father hath commanded me that I should give unto you. Notice that last example of the building on the foundation and the floods coming and, you know, the rocky and the sandy. That's the third time he's taught that on that day. Remember, we're still on day one. Three times he's taught that concept. Right away in chapter 11, he did at the last few verses, 39 through 41. And after the sermon at the temple in 24 through 27 of chapter 14. And this is the third time. Interesting. Indeed. There was an institute manual quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in which he talked about things that we can do to help remember the Lord while we are partaking of the sacrament. He says, quote, We could remember the Savior's pre-mortal life and all that we know him to have done. We could remember the simple grandeur of his mortal birth to just a young woman, We could remember Christ's miracles and his teachings, his healings, and his help. We could remember that Jesus found special joy and happiness in children and said all of us should be more like them. We could remember that Christ called his disciples friends. We could and should remember the wonderful things that have come to us in our lives and that all things which are good cometh of Christ. On some days, we will have cause to remember the unkind treatment he received, the rejection he experienced, and the injustice he endured. We can remember that Jesus had to descend below all things before he could ascend above them, and that he suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind that he might be filled with mercy and know how to succor his people in their infirmities, end quote. That's from October 1995 General Conference. I thought that was really helpful. Sometimes we make the statement to remember the Lord, remember Jesus Christ during the sacrament, and it's helpful sometimes to receive some examples or some ideas that we can apply. There was another quote that I found in the Come Follow Me manual from President Henry B. Eyring. This is from an Enzyme article in February 2018 called Always Remember Him that covered a similar idea but from a different perspective. He says, quote, As you examine your life during the ordinance of the sacrament, I hope your thoughts center not only things you have done wrong, but also on things you have done right. Moments when you have felt that Heavenly Father and the Savior were pleased with you. You may even take a moment during the sacrament to ask God to help you see these things. When I have done this, the Spirit has reassured me that while I am still far from perfect, I am better today than I was yesterday, 
And this gives me confidence that because of the Savior, I can be even better tomorrow. End quote. I so love that. true. Very inspiring. So if remembering is so important, then it's maybe worth discussing with family and friends what are some common ways in which Satan seeks to tempt us to forget about the Savior? If it's so important to keep the commandments, what are some ways that Satan tempts us to disobey the Lord's commandments? By having that discussion in this area, it can really give us another side to consider, warnings to watch out for. Okay, now going on in verse 15, and if we look at 15 through 21 as a block, we could look at that as a recipe of how to be strengthened against temptation. Again, we've just been told, we need to remember the Lord. Satan will try to get us to forget him. We need to obey the commandments and witness that we will. Satan seeks to get us to disobey. How do we get strengthened against that temptation? Let's take a look at what we learn in these verses. Starting in verse 15, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil and ye be led away captive by him. Now, why both watching and praying? Think about what that might mean. So what does it mean to watch? In part, we need to be aware of what's happening. What's our enemy doing? What are our weaknesses? And how does Satan use that to his advantage? And we each have different ones. So being actively aware, not just floating down with the current, but we have a direction that we want to go. Maybe that's another way to think about watching. We have a direction and we need to have our eyes single to who we want to become and then watch for those influences that try to sway us from that path. I think along a similar line, we are all familiar with our own weaknesses. We know where our soft spots are. Yeah. And we should be very cautious about what might be tripping those weaknesses because we know that Satan will want to do that. And those weaknesses are so obvious that all you need to do is ask yourself this question. What am I now doing that I shouldn't be doing? And probably all of us immediately have come to mind what that something is. And then you could also be asking that same other question. These were questions that Elder Kimby Clark shared. What am I not doing that I should be doing? So right there, those are great questions to help us to watch. Now, he goes on in verse 16. As I have prayed among you, even so shall ye pray in my church among my people who do repent and are baptized in my name. Behold, I am the light. I have set an example for you. So we've got the encouragement to pray and that he's already given us the example to pray. Hey, one more thing on watching now that I'm thinking about it. I was thinking back now on the example that Christ set. And you know how we pointed out right away that he was perceiving, he was watching, he could sense the needs of those around him. Maybe that's another way that we can avoid temptation by watching as the Savior set the example by being aware of the needs of those around us. Anyway, in the same way that he set the example for praying as it should be done in the church and what power can come from that to help us avoid temptation. 
That's a good point. From the Institute Manual, I found another quote from President Henry B. Eyring about the notion of praying always. This is from a CES fireside for young adults, January 3rd, 1999. It was also republished in the October 1999 Enzyme. The article was named Always. He says, quote, What does the master mean when he warns us to pray always? I'm not wise enough to know all of his purposes in giving us a covenant to always remember him and in his warning us to pray always lest we be overcome. But I know one. It is because he knows perfectly the powerful forces that influence us and also what it means to be human. He knows what it is like to have the cares of life press in upon us. And he knows how our human powers to cope are not constant. As the forces around us increase in intensity, whatever spiritual strength was once sufficient will not be enough. And whatever growth in spiritual strength we once thought was possible, greater growth will be made available to us. Both the need for spiritual strength and the opportunity to acquire it will increase at rates which we underestimate at our peril. Start with remembering him. You will remember what you know and what you love. The Lord hears the prayers of your heart, the feelings of your heart of love for our Heavenly Father and for his beloved Son can be so constant that your prayers will ascend always. End quote. That's such a beautiful vision of prayer. It's really great. I love that. All right, going on in our recipe for avoiding temptation in verse 17. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words unto his disciples, he turned again unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore ye must always pray unto the Father in my name. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed." I found a really short quote in the Institute Manual that I really liked that I wanted to include. This is from President Gordon B. Hinckley in the April 1963 General Conference. He says, quote, I feel satisfied that there is no adequate substitute for the morning and evening practice of kneeling together, father, mother, and children. This, more than soft carpets, more than lovely draperies, more than cleverly balanced color schemes, is the thing that will make for better and more beautiful homes, end quote. What a great thing to discuss. How can yeah. these verses, how can these teachings from living prophets, how can they help us strengthen ourselves and our families against temptation? Let's continue in verse 22, but even... This coming up is a great addition to the recipe for resisting temptation. And behold, ye shall meet together oft. And ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together. But suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. 
but ye shall pray for them, and shall not cast them out. And if it so be that they come unto you oft, ye shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. Therefore hold up your light, that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. So right there we've got an interesting definition of the light he's talking about, his example. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father, and ye all have witnessed. And ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that ye should come unto me, that ye might feel and see. Even so shall ye do unto the world. And whosoever breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. You know, before we go on any further, this verse reminded me of a general conference talk that we had just back in April of 2020. This was a talk given by Bonnie H. Corden. She talks about several stories. One in particular that I thought was really cute was of her as a little girl interacting with Elder Perry. And if you don't remember that story, it's really sweet, but it also has a really powerful message about holding up your light that they may see. That's the name of her talk, that they may see. Later in the talk, after she's given some examples of people who have shown their light that they may see, she says, quote, Now, in case you are thinking, these are great thousand-watt examples, but I'm a 20-watt bulb. Remember that the Savior testified, I am the light which he shall hold up. He reminds us that he will bring the light if we just point others to him. You and I have enough light to share right now. We can light the next step to help someone draw nearer to Jesus Christ, and then the next step and the next. Ask yourself, who needs the light you have to find the path? they need but cannot see end quote so good i love that that really ties into this idea you know as he's talking the meeting together the not turning anyone away the holding up your light which is the example of christ and a gathering together it culminates i think in verse 25 and ye see that i have commanded that none of you should go away but rather have commanded that ye should come unto me that ye might feel and see, even so shall ye do unto the world. And whoso breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. As we're talking about that recipe to avoid temptation, here it is. Here's a commandment that if we break this commandment, we open ourselves up to temptation. And that commandment is that we don't turn anyone away, that we hold up our light to all. And that's not easy to do, but there's power. If breaking that commandment can lead us to temptation, keeping that commandment can anchor us to the Savior. Well, and speaking of keeping the commandments, in verse 26, the Savior goes into a description to his disciples, cautioning them about the sacredness of the sacrament. Starting in verse 26, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned his eyes again upon the disciples whom he had chosen and said unto them, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you another commandment, 
And then I must go unto my father, that I may fulfill other commandments which he hath given me. And now behold, this is the commandment which I give unto you, that ye shall not suffer any one knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily, when ye shall minister it. For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. Therefore, if ye know that a man is unworthy to eat and drink of my flesh and blood, ye shall forbid him. Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him, and shall pray for him unto the Father in my name. That concept of being worthy. There's a quote in the Institute Manual from Elder John H. Groberg. This is from April 1989 General Conference, and he talks about that a little bit further. He says, quote, If we desire to improve, which is to repent, and are not under priesthood restriction, then, in my opinion, we are worthy. If, however, we have no desire to improve, if we have no intention of following the guidance of the Spirit, we must ask, are we worthy to partake? Or are we making a mockery of the very purpose of the sacrament, which is to act as a catalyst for personal repentance and improvement? If we remember the Savior and all he has done and will do for us, we will improve our actions and thus come closer to him, which keeps us on the road to eternal life. If, however, we refuse to repent and improve, if we do not remember him and keep his commandments, then we have stopped our growth, and that is damnation to our souls. The sacrament is an intensely personal experience, and we are the ones who knowingly are worthy or otherwise. As we worthily partake of the sacrament, we will sense those things we need to improve in and receive the help and determination to do so. No matter what our problems, the sacrament always gives hope. Most of these problems we must work out ourselves. For example, if we aren't paying our tithing, we simply determine to start doing so. But for some problems, we must see our bishop. The Spirit will let us know which. End quote. I love that. It's important for us to remember that as we take the sacrament. Moving on in verse 33. Therefore, keep these sayings which I have commanded you, that ye come not under condemnation, for woe unto him whom the Father condemneth. And I give you these commandments because of the disputations which have been among you. And blessed are ye if ye have no disputations among you. And now I go unto the Father, because it is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. In the next couple of verses, Jesus touches his chosen disciples and gives them power to give the Holy Ghost. But moving on in verse 38, And it came to pass that when Jesus had touched them all, there came a cloud and overshadowed the multitude, that they could not see Jesus. And while they were overshadowed, he departed from them and ascended into heaven. And the disciples saw and did bear record that he ascended again into heaven. Now, that's the end of the first day. <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh, my That's gosh. a big day. That is. Hey, I just have a thought back on 34. Blessed are ye if you have no disputations among you. It's interesting because does that mean they shouldn't disagree on anything? I don't think so. But disputations are different than disagreeings. Disputations lead to contentions. And that's an important 
distinction, I think. Well, and I would add to that that the reason that you're blessed if you don't have any disputations is that means that you are all seeking guidance from the Spirit. Yeah. The Spirit does not provide contention. The Spirit unifies. And so yeah. if you are unified, then you are all channeled into the Spirit. Yeah, that's great. A good example to each of us. So let's go on to chapter 19. Welcome to chapter 19, day two. Wow. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Could you have slept that night? Let's find out what the people did here in verse one. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had ascended into heaven, the multitude did disperse and every man did take his wife and his children and did return to his own home. And it was noised abroad among the people immediately before it was yet dark. Okay, so technically we haven't yet finished the day. Oh, that's true. It's still the first day. That's true. But Jesus's part is done. So the people are going around telling everybody before it was yet dark, going on that the multitude had seen Jesus and that he had ministered unto them and that he would also show himself on the morrow unto the multitude. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Everyone running around trying to get everybody to come. Now, you want to be well-rested for the next day, but on the other hand, you don't want anybody to miss out. Well, and it's an interesting note here that although there were 2,500 souls that were there on the first day, it wasn't everybody. And I don't know what everyone else was doing. I can't imagine that if you were in the neighborhood at all, you could help but see, well, what's going on over there? Well, you know, they had a lot they were dealing with with all that destruction and stuff. But it True. is interesting to realize that this was in a very specific place in Bountiful. Right. And so you have people maybe in other cities that were not aware that this was going on. And they are talking about it. They're saying, hey, here's what happened. And he's coming back tomorrow. So come and see. <laughs> wow. Verse 3, yea, and even all the night it was noised abroad concerning Jesus. And insomuch did they send forth unto the people that there were many, yea, an exceedingly great number did labor exceedingly all that night that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself unto the multitude. And it came to pass that on the morrow, when the multitude was gathered together, behold, Nephi and his brother, whom he had raised from the dead, whose name was Timothy, and also his son, and it goes on to list the other disciples. I think it's really neat, though, that the disciples stood in the midst of the multitude at the end of verse 4. They're following the example of the Savior who was in the midst of the multitude. You know, and it's an interesting thought there in verse 3. I didn't see that this time around, but the line that an exceedingly great number did labor exceedingly all that night that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself. The fact that they labored almost implies that they're setting things up. You know, I picture a modern setting of a group of young men folding chairs, you know, getting everything ready. Well, and even carrying people or leading mm -hmm. them or, you know. I Helping mean, them get there. Yeah. yeah, so much service that could be given in order to help Everyone have the opportunity. Yeah, that is a beautiful vision. So going on, the 12 disciples divide the people into 12 groups. And they begin to teach them. And after they instruct the multitude to kneel in prayer, the 12 disciples also prayed 
and then taught the people the same truths that the Savior had taught the previous day. And in verse 8, it makes it clear that when they administered those same words which Jesus had spoken, nothing varying from the words which Jesus had spoken. And then the disciples again knelt in prayer. Now, what is it they were praying for? In verse 9, it tells us, And they did pray for that which they most desired, and they desired that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. I was reminded of a favorite quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie in his book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith, describing the difference between receiving inspiration from the Holy Ghost and having the gift of the Holy Ghost. He says, quote, Before and after baptism, all men are endowed to one degree or another with that spirit which is the light of Christ. Before baptism, they may receive revelation from the Holy Ghost for the purpose of giving them a testimony of the truth and divinity of the Lord's work on earth. After baptism, they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and it is then their right to have the constant companionship of that member of the Godhead if they keep the commandments. The testimony before baptism, speaking by way of analogy, comes as a flash of lightning blazing forth in a dark and stormy night. It comes to light the path on which earth's pilgrims, far from their heavenly home and lost in the deserts and swamps of the world, must walk if they are to return to the divine presence. The companionship of the Holy Ghost after baptism is as the continuing blaze of the sun at noonday, shedding its rays on the path of life and on all that surrounds it. End quote. I love you know, that analogy. The time that we really understand that power of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost is when we lose it. Oh, yes. And if you've heard testimonies of people that have been excommunicated from the church and come back and how they talk about the gift of the Holy Ghost being restored, that really illustrates its power. We may take it for granted without that. That's a good point. Going on in verse 10, And when they had thus prayed, they went down unto the water's edge, and the multitude followed them. And it came to pass that Nephi went down into the water and was baptized. And he came up out of the water and began to baptize. And he baptized all those whom Jesus had chosen. And it came to pass that when they were all baptized and had come up out of the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And behold, they were encircled about as if it were by fire. And it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness, and they did bear record. And angels did come down out of heaven and did minister unto them. And it came to pass that while the angels were ministering unto the disciples, behold, Jesus came and stood in the midst and ministered unto them. What a way to start a day. Prayer That's and an instruction entrance. and baptism and the Holy Ghost being poured out and then angels and then comes the Savior. Wow. You know, a brief note on this. There are some that have pointed out certainly that it's maybe a little strange to us today that Nephi who was undoubtedly baptized prior to this, is being baptized again. And there were perhaps others who had been baptized previously. We know that certainly Nephi was baptizing around the time Samuel the Lamanite was preaching. Mm -hmm. 
This is very similar to what happened with our restored church in 1830. Certainly, Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith and others who were baptized prior to April 6, 1830, were baptized again. This time, they were baptized into the restored and organized Church of Jesus Christ. This is the same type of thing. We're establishing a new covenant here. Yeah, so true. So going on in verse 16, And it came to pass that he spake, Jesus, unto the multitude, and commanded them that they should kneel down again upon the earth, and also that his disciples should kneel down upon the earth. And it came to pass that when they had all knelt down upon the earth, he commanded his disciples that they should pray. And behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. Now, let's take a little bit of a break right there. That's something that has caused some questions among some people. Well, especially since the previous day, he had taught them to pray always to the Father in his name. Right. And in that verse, verse 18, they did pray unto Jesus. There's a thought that I had found from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. This was in the Institute Manual. This is from his book, The Promised Messiah, The First Coming of Christ. He says, quote, There was a special reason why this was done in this instance, and on a one-time basis, Jesus had already taught them to pray in his name to the Father, which they first did. Jesus was present before them as the symbol of the Father. Seeing him, it was as though they saw the Father. Praying to him, it was as though they prayed to the Father. It was a special and unique situation, end quote. That's important. So that goes in, we've talked earlier about the concept of divine investiture, and I think this is another example of that. Yeah, I think Jesus fully understood their intention. So Agreed. going forward, we now have a whole section on prayer. In verses 19 through 23, we see the Savior's prayer. We'll call it his first prayer on that day. And then the disciples' prayer in 24 through 26. And then the Savior's second prayer in 27 through 29. As we look at each one of these, a good question to ask is, what truths can you learn about prayer from each of these sections? Let's start in 19. And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of the midst of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all them that shall believe in their words. Father, Thou hast given them the Holy Ghost, because they believe in me. And thou seest that they believe in me, because thou hearest them. And they pray unto me, and they pray unto me, because I am with them. And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for all those who shall believe on their words, that they may believe in me, that I may be in them, as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. So there's our first prayer, that connection that he makes about them being connected to the Savior and that he, 
then is like a mediator with the Father. There's also another example of that oneness. We talked about this in our last lesson, the concept of being one. This is the same one that we refer to as the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost being one. It's a unified purpose. Absolutely. Verse 24 now. It came to pass that when Jesus had thus prayed unto the Father, he came unto his disciples, and behold, they did still continue without ceasing to pray unto him. And they did not multiply many words, for it was given unto them what they should pray. And they were filled with desire. Wow, let's look at that for a minute. (laughs) One, they did not cease to pray. What can we learn from that? They did not multiply many words. What can we learn from that? That was an interesting line in particular. There was a quote from the Institute Manual that I found from Elder Gene R. Cook. This is from his book, Receiving Answers to Our Prayers. He says, quote, When the Nephite disciples were praying in the presence of Jesus, they set a good example for us all. The record says they did not multiply many words. This is consistent with the commandment the Lord gave to the Jews during his mortal ministry. He said, When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. When we pray publicly, let us be careful to never be swept away in the desire for the honors of men, which might cause us to pray without real intent or to unnecessarily extend the length of our prayers. The same caution applies to those who pray for a mortal audience rather than simply to be heard by the Lord. We must always be careful to avoid flowery prayers or prayers to impress. Surely the Lord is not pleased with such an approach, nor will he answer the prayers of one who is not focused on the Lord or who prays without real intent." That's an interesting thought given the discussion that we had earlier about the limitations of our language. I would think that if we attempt to use overly flowery words in our prayer, that our Heavenly Father would quite appropriately, condescendingly think, oh, that's cute, but (laughs) you don't have the real language to represent here. Well, and look at what it says after that in keeping with what you just read and were saying. For it was given unto them what they should pray. Right. The goal is to be connected with the Savior so that we pray his will. That's the goal. The goal isn't to command God or to plead for favors. We can certainly pray over our flocks and our herds. We can pray for those in need and so forth. But the goal of prayer is to unify our will with God's will. And that's what I see here. It was given unto them what they should pray, and they were filled with desire. Look at what happened because of the desire of the righteous in verses 17 and 18. How amazing was that? And continually we see the importance of what the desire is. Here they were filled with desire. Let's continue in 25. And it came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him. And his countenance did smile upon them. And the light of his countenance did shine upon them. And behold, they were as white as the countenance and also the garments of Jesus. And behold, the whiteness thereof did exceed all the whiteness, yea, even there could be nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness thereof. You know how we were talking about how there's not always words to describe something? Mm. I feel like this is 
one of those examples where Mormon is trying desperately to describe the luminance, the purity, the completeness, the energy of something that defies words. And so he keeps using this word white, which is such a great word when we think of whiteness as light. He's already described himself as light. And here this countenance, the light of his countenance is white. And the great thing that we understand about white light is that white light is all the spectrums of light, all the colors of light. When we're fractured, that's a color. When white light is fractured, it's a color, red or blue or whatever. But here it is everything. He is complete. He is whole. He is all color. He is all everything. And I love that verse because they're trying so hard to describe something that just can't be described. Well, and I want to go back a minute to our previous discussions about the usage of the words black and white when describing people. I don't think we should have any reason to suspect that in verse 25, he is talking about being amazingly Caucasian. (laughs) I don't think it has anything to do with race. It has everything to do with countenance. Yeah, and the light of it. And just as we were talking about before this idea of light and dark countenances in the Book of Mormon, this is the whitest of all countenances. This is everything. So verse 26, Jesus said unto them, pray on. Nevertheless, they did not cease to pray. That's a great example to me too. And then we go on to Jesus's second prayer, verse 27. And he turned from them again and went a little way off and bowed himself to the earth. And he prayed again unto the father saying, father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. And I pray for them and also for them who shall believe on their words, that they may be purified in me through faith on their words, even as they are purified in me. Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world, because of their faith, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one, that I may be glorified in them. There's that one again. That they I love it. May be constant, one. constant emphasis. And not only that, but the concept of being purified in me. This particular prayer has some similarities to the prayer that Jesus offers in John chapter 17, the intercessory prayer. Verse 30, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he came again unto his disciples. And behold, they did pray steadfastly without ceasing unto him. And he did smile upon them again. And behold, they were white, even as Jesus. Oh, it's so beautiful. Can you imagine the countenances, the radiance, the brightness that's all around? Just a beautiful, beautiful image that they would have his brightness upon them. Oh, goodness. Let's finish up verse 31. And it came to pass that he went again a little way off and prayed unto the Father. And tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed. Neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. 
And the multitude did hear and do bear record, and their hearts were open, and they did understand in their hearts the words which he prayed. Nevertheless, so great and marvelous were the words which he prayed that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came again to the disciples and said unto them, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews. Wherefore, I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Verily I say unto you, there are none of them that have seen so great things as ye have seen. Neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard. If we were to try to put together the blessings that have come to them because of the desires that they had, this should be the perfect testimony for how important desire is. Now, we talked earlier about the concept of Jesus praying things that were so marvelous that they couldn't be written as being a limitation of language. Here, I wonder if it is both a limitation of language and a concept of just being so sacred that it's not to be recorded. I had a quote that I found in the Institute Manual from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks. This is from a CES fireside for young adults on May 7, 2000, where he says, quote, Why don't our talks in general conference and local meetings say more about the miracles we have seen? Most of the miracles we experience are not to be shared. Consistent with the teachings of the scriptures, we hold them sacred and share them only when the Spirit prompts us to do so. Modern revelation directs that they shall not boast themselves of these things, neither speak them before the world, for these things are given unto you for your profit and for salvation. Another revelation declares, Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. Latter-day Saints generally follow these directions. In bearing testimonies and in our public addresses, we rarely mention our most miraculous experiences, and we rarely rely on signs that the gospel is true. We usually just affirm our testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel and give few details on how we obtained it. Why is this? Signs follow those that believe. Seeking a miracle to convert someone is improper sign-seeking. By the same token, it is usually inappropriate to recite miraculous circumstances to a general audience that includes people with very different levels of spiritual maturity. To a general audience, miracles will be faith-reinforcing for some, but an inappropriate sign for others. End quote. Something important to remember as we experience more and more of our own personal sacred moments. So remember, this is still just the second day with these yep. people in the Book of Mormon. There's more to come. And we'll look forward to talking to you more about that in our next lesson. And we hope you have an opportunity to enjoy general conference with your families and friends. Pay close attention to the words of our prophet and the apostles and our other speakers and make a note of those things that you feel. And we'll look forward to being with you after. Sounds great. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>